You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. The rest of that psalm goes on to talk uh, about how his body would not be left in the grave, and, and Christ's body was not left in the grave. And we're going to look at that just now. Um, if you can turn to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to read um, not one of the resurrection accounts, we've read those already, but we're going to read how the Apostle Paul communicated that in the great city of Athens. Acts chapter 17, I'm going to read from verse 16. And we're going to look at the last few verses. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. This was uh, kind of like a a governing council, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dineosius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. In Romans 1, Paul says, 
Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's interesting. Uh, I'm intrigued that our Prime Minister, David Cameron, and others have taken it upon themselves just now to say, well, it's good, we're a Christian country, and it's the message of Christianity, and we want the true message of Easter, and so on. And I think that's great, until they confuse the message. Our Prime Minister said that the message of Christianity was do unto others as you'd have them do to you. Or that we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves. But that's not just the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity, the first part, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And in the New Testament church, the message of Christianity, wherever it went, always began with Jesus. Jesus was dead. Jesus is alive. Let's think about what that means. Now, Paul went to Athens, and he was speaking there to a group, um, people who had a philosophy called Epicureanism. Epicureans are still around. One of the things they did not believe is they did not believe in life after death. Peter, when he went to the Jews, said that the resurrection of Jesus proved that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul points to the resurrection in a very different way. Look at what he says. He says that the resurrection is proof that Jesus is coming back to judge the world. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says this, They themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. But that's not the message of Easter. Isn't the message of Easter like new life and daffodils and bunnies and Jesus being raised and everything being great? But Paul is using the message of the resurrection. And what he's saying in this is very straightforward. He's saying God has given proof of everything, including the judgment, by raising Jesus from the dead. And you'll note the reaction. Of course, Paul knew this. He goes and speaks to people who deny that a resurrection is possible, like the majority of people in this city. And what happens? When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others wanted to hear more, and a few believed. Some sneered. And there's plenty of people will sneer. And maybe, I, I don't think you'd be here if you would sneer. I mean, I, I think you might be skeptical, and that's fair enough. Because resurrections don't just happen, do they? As we'll see. So I'm, I'm wanting to look at this, and I want to look at it in a slightly different way. Um, if any of you have happened to read, and there's no reason that you should have uh, read Magnificent Obsession, you'll recognize some of this. So I apologize, because uh, some of it is taken from. Uh, it's really bad, taken from my own book, but um, 
it's, I was just thinking about it a lot, and I've just thought, well, I'll use these illustrations in the same way. But here's the thing. I just imagine in my head, I imagine Paul saying, God has proved this by raising Jesus from the dead. And what is their immediate response going to be? Their immediate response is going to be, okay, prove that. Prove that Jesus rose from the dead. What would Paul have said? I want you to try and get back into his mindset and think about the culture in which he was in and then how it applies in the culture that we are in. Augustine says this, the leading truth that the early Christians professed, or the leading truth they professed, he's talking about the early Christians, is that Christ rose from the dead and first showed in his own flesh the immortality of the resurrection which he promised should be ours. Because here is why this is so important. If Jesus rose from the dead, it is the ultimate game changer. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then that is also the ultimate game changer for those of us who are believers. Yaroslav Pelikan, what a great name. I think it's probably Yugoslavian or something, but what a great name. Yaroslav Pelikan says this, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, nothing else matters. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, nothing else matters. So with that in mind, let's ask, what did Paul say? What would he have said, do you think? I think the first thing he would say is this. Imagine he, at the end of this chapter, we've, Paul says he basically has to leave because they're sneering at him. A few people become followers and believe. Others want to hear more. We want to hear you again on this subject. Now, forgive me for using my imagination, and maybe you can pick up and say, oh, well, he wouldn't have said this. I want you to look at this and to realize um, what I'm saying comes from the Scripture, from what Paul did say. But just imagine Paul's gathering with people, and he's saying, okay, what would I say? I think the first thing Paul would say is this. I think he would say, you're right, resurrections don't happen. This is an extraordinary event that has occurred. This is not something that is usual. In first century Jerusalem, in first century Athens, in 21st century Dundee, resurrections don't happen. That's why all those Easter messages about uh, Easter is about the promise of spring and the trees budding to life, and it's just normal, it's the cycle of life, it's the circle of life. No, it's not. This is a massive interruption into the cycle of life and death. Resurrections were not normal. If resurrections were normal, then saying that Jesus is the Son of God because of the resurrection would be like saying Jesus is the Son of God because he got better after being sick. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is extraordinary. And Paul knew that when he said it. He wasn't standing up and saying, I'm going to tell you something that you all think can happen. He's saying, I'm telling you something that doesn't happen. And that is very important for us because I think sometimes those of us who are Christians are a bit blasé. We go, yeah, well, well, the resurrection happened because it says in the Bible the resurrection happened, the resurrection happened. It is quite extraordinary. I think the second thing Paul would have said is, look, Jesus really did die. Nobody in first century Athens was going to dispute that Jesus existed. Rumors would have got round. But I think he's going to say he really did die. 
He was flogged, nailed to a tree, stabbed in the side, covered in spices, wrapped up in a shroud. And he was dead. Some people were going to argue he didn't really die. Uh, Not now, but a few hundred years later, uh, Mohammed was going to say, well, actually what happened was Jesus fainted. And he was put on the cross, but he fainted and was taken into the tomb. And in the cool air of the tomb, he revived. He woke up, folded up the grave clothes, and rolled away the stone. I always find that rather bizarre, this idea of the swoon theory that, you know, after getting up, Jesus makes his clothes all neat and tidy. Um, It just seems to me just, just completely bizarre. But anyway, and this massive stone, he rolls it away. It's a bit like in the song, uh, Mumford and Sons, roll away the stone, roll away your stone. Roll away your stone, I'll roll away mine. And it's always used, the the resurrection, the cross, you've got a burden in your way, you've got something, you just push it, you get it aside, and this is an example of that. I don't think Paul would say that at all. He said, Jesus really died. He was dead. And he was really buried. We know that. There was a man called Joseph of Arimathea, aided by a Pharisee called Nicodemus, who took the body of Jesus and they took it to Joseph's own tomb, a family tomb for wealthy people. If you go to some of the castles around Scotland or some of the big gardens, you'll see sometimes in them a mausoleum, and uh, you'll see it is a family tomb, to have your own family tomb. The graves out there, there are 26 of them, there's 400 people buried in them. Why? Because most of the people were poor and couldn't afford to have gravestones put up. But if you had your family tomb, it was a big public thing. And Joseph took Jesus to his family tomb, left the body there after sealing it with a massive stone. There were some women who followed Jesus, who had been at the cross, who watched from a distance, who wanted to do the Jewish practice of dressing the body, but couldn't do so because the sun had set and it was forbidden to do so on the Jewish Sabbath. Saturday. So they waited first thing until the Sunday morning. Paul would have said he was really alive. He really died. He was really buried. And a Roman guard was put on the tomb. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, of which Paul was probably a part, asked that that happen. Paul would have had first-hand knowledge of this. Why did they ask? Because Jesus had prophesied the resurrection. And they would have known the importance of that. Now, I think that, again, it's quite extraordinary how the human mind works and how the human heart works. Because I think they thought, okay, we'll stop the disciples stealing the body and saying he's come alive. But maybe even in part of them, they were scared the resurrection was going to happen. And imagine thinking that if the resurrection happens, we better make sure he doesn't get out. You know, if he's got power to rise from the dead, then stones and soldiers are no problem. But that's the kind of perversity and illogicality of the human mind. Paul would then have said, I'm not making this up because we've got eyewitness accounts. Now, the interesting thing is, in Athens, Paul almost certainly would not have had the Gospels. He would not have had Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Paul's letters were written before the Gospels. Why weren't the Gospels written by then? because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were still alive. And they were able to go around and testify. It's, it's like there were hundreds of eyewitnesses who went around all over the place 
testifying what they had seen. The Gospels were written as the apostles basically got older and older and were going to die off. Now, I don't think Paul would have had the Gospels, but he certainly meant meant their authors. He would have had the information they had contained. And what's significant in it is he would have known that the first witnesses and the chief witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ were women. That was significant because I'm sure, as many of you know, the testimony of a woman in that culture was considered to be only worth half that of a man. And if you were making it up, you would not stand up in the Jewish ruling council and you would not stand up in the Areopagus and say, this is what happened, these were the witnesses, these women, and by the way, one of them was a prostitute. You wouldn't do that. But Paul did. He told them, he said, we've got these different accounts. I think it's very interesting that you can see in our text, a woman named Damaris came to believe. Because one of the ways that the gospel is communicated, it's communicated to everybody. The different accounts, though. Can you imagine people saying to Paul, but yes, you've, okay, you've got these different accounts, you've got these different witnesses. And supposing they did have the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which were eventually become the gospels. People say, well, that just proves it didn't happen because it's all contradictory. You go and read the gospels, and there are different accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus. But let me explain it in this way, why that's rather an evidence for the resurrection rather than against it. Supposing someone comes to you, you're a police person, and uh, someone comes to you and says, I was attacked by this man. And they go into great detail about how they were attacked. And then someone else comes completely independently and tells you exactly the same story with exactly the same detail. I was attacked by this man. And they have every single detail exactly the same. And then a third person comes, again, apparently independently, and says the same. And then a fourth person comes and says exactly the same. What do you, as a, as a policeman or a policewoman, do? You, you, you go, wait a minute. This can't be right. All four stories are exactly identical. Therefore, they must have colluded. They cannot all have remembered it exactly the same way. It's actually a doctrine in law called the Murov Doctrine. That if, if someone comes, let's say, it's usually done in, in, in the context of a woman being attacked and rape or something like that, and uh, someone comes and says, you know, this man assaulted me, and there's no, there's no witnesses of it. So it's just her word against his, and it won't normally stand up. But someone else comes and says the same thing. Someone else comes and says the same thing. Someone else comes and says the same thing. When you've got a number of witnesses testifying to a similar experience, there's enough for a case against them unless the witnesses say exactly the same thing. Because if they say exactly the same thing, it proves they've been colluding and have probably made it up. If the gospel said exactly the same thing, then it would be more unreliable. The fact that these are different accounts, I don't think they're contradictory accounts, but they're different accounts, Paul would say, we've got these eyewitness accounts. I think it's lovely that um, Paul would have known at the end of Luke's gospel, for example, the couple who were probably a married couple on the road to Emmaus, 
who gave account of what had happened to them when they'd met the risen Jesus. How would Paul have known them? How would he have known about them? Because he traveled with Luke. And that was one of the major evidences that Dr. Luke had. Or in Luke 24, verses 42 and 43, the the detail that Luke puts, they gave Jesus a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Now, I don't know if the lady's here, but I met a lovely Brazilian lady yesterday who said, will you have a meal tomorrow? And I said, yes, of course, but will you have a meal in the church? No. Um, Because we have fish on Easter in Brazil, in in our churches. We have a fish meal. And I think this is where that comes from. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. See, it's Paul would have direct knowledge of all of this. He's an intelligent man. He's an educated man. He's an articulate man. And he's standing up in front of these philosophers and scholars and politicians, and he's telling them, Jesus really did rise from the dead. We have eyewitnesses. This might be a bit more speculative, but I think there's plenty. It makes sense, doesn't it? I think Paul would have said, I've been to the tomb. It's empty. I know where Jesus was buried. I've seen the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. It's empty. There's nothing there. There is no body there. Was the body stolen? At one point, Paul would have said, I believe that. I believe the body was stolen. I believe that the Roman soldiers testified to that. But then because Paul was on the ruling council of the Jewish Sanhedrin, we read that the chief priests and the elders bribed the Roman soldiers to say it. Would Paul have known? I think he would have. Roman soldiers didn't sleep on duty. It was a severe punishment. Maybe the women went to the wrong tomb, but then it would have been easy to provide the body from the real tomb, guarded by Roman soldiers. Paul knew that the tomb was empty, and he knew it wasn't because the disciples had stolen the body. And then I think he would have said this, I met the disciples I met those who were with Jesus. I wasn't one of his disciples. I hated them. I hated what they called the way. I was involved in the first killing of them. The first one who was killed, Stephen. I stood there and I held their cloaks as they threw stones at him. And as the blood gushed from his face, I stood there and I applauded. Because I so hated these people. I hated everything they stood for. But it bothered me. It pricked me. How could they die in such peace? How could that man die as we are killing him with the most horrendous death? And he's praying, Father, forgive them. In the same way as Jesus on the cross prayed, Father, forgive them. And why, when I went round and persecuted them, didn't they give up? Why were they so committed to a dead Lord? The only answer could be because he wasn't dead. They weren't liars. They really, really believed it. And then Paul would say, and there's my own experience too. If you've got a Bible, turn to Acts 26. Let me read his testimony. Acts 26 verse 4, where Paul is again testifying before a king, King Agrippa. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They've known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I'm on trial today. 
This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? That's a great question. People who say God doesn't raise the dead, they're not saying that. What they're saying is there is no God. And then they're saying the dead aren't raised. But why should you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Not just Stephen. You'll notice in his own testimony, he's not just saying I did it once. He's saying, I voted that they should be killed. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Paul's saying, I came to places like Athens to attack these people. Now I am standing here and telling you that what they said was true. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. Interesting, isn't it? You're a witness of what you have seen of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I've had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I wonder, you know, Paul must have got fed up of being accused of being insane all the time. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time along, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. I met the disciples. I hated them. I killed them. And then I met Jesus. And everything changed. Everything changed. Including the Sabbath. Paul, the strict Pharisee, the uber-religious Jew, the guy who's going to be stoning you or burning you for picking up sticks on the Sabbath, he's the one who says, 
right. We're changing the Sabbath to the Lord's Day. I think Easter's great. I really do. I love Easter. But um, do you know the, the Christmas song? I wish it could be Christmas every day. And you don't really. Uh, for the Christian, Easter is every Sunday. I think we need to remember that. It's why we meet on a Sunday. We meet on the Lord's Day, the day that Christ rose from the dead. And then another evidence I think that Paul would have said, and we can say now as well, is we're still here. Paul says the church is growing and expanding everywhere. It's here in Athens. It's still growing strong. There is the presence of Christ among us. Augustine says this, and now we have three incredibles, all of which have yet to come to pass. It is incredible that Jesus Christ should have risen in the flesh and ascended with flesh into heaven. It is incredible that the world should have believed so incredible a thing. It is incredible that a very few men of mean birth and the lowest rank and no education should have been able so effectually to persuade the world and even in its learned men of so incredible a thing. I love, uh, there's a wee YouTube clip of Bono talking about his, his faith, about praying on the bed with his family and the rather cynical interviewer saying, you know, do you really believe? So you pray to Jesus, so you believe that Jesus is alive? Yes. You believe he rose from the dead? Yes. He says, I find it very difficult. Bono says this, I find it very difficult to think that more than 50% of the world follow a nutter, someone who claims something that he was not. It is incredible. The church is an incredible proof of the resurrection of Jesus. So how does all this, I I think Paul would have brought all those things in, and I think there are people who would have been convinced and who who became believers, and there are others who would have turned away and others said, no, 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 we'll hear more about it later. But let me try and apply this to where we are at. Firstly, let me ask a simple question. Why don't Protestants have crucifixes, that is, crosses with Christ on them? It's very simple, because Christ came down off the cross. Christ is no longer on the cross. The cross is empty. Christ has risen. Tim Keller at the Gospel Coalition last year said this, resurrection makes Christianity the most irritating religion on earth. Why? Because you can argue about ethics, doctrine, rituals until you're blue in the face. People can believe what they want, but the resurrection means everything has changed. It's why Mr. Cameron misses the whole point if he says, I like Christianity because it provides a good system of morals. That is irrelevant I want to ask David Cameron, and I would ask anyone else, as Paul asked King Agrippa, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? If Christ is not raised, then Christians are to be pitied for wasting our lives. But if Christ is raised, then that means it would be insane to ignore him and his claims. We are mourning with those who mourn in this congregation. We have done that before, to stand at a graveside, to go to the crematorium, to know that somebody who was living and breathing, whom you loved, who you interacted with, is no longer able to do that, and to stand there without the hope of the resurrection is the most bleak an empty feeling. Job says this, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth, 
And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Do you think it's just a fairy story that we tell George's grandchildren? Do you know your grandfather's in heaven with Jesus? And people go, that's just a fairy story you're telling them to make them feel comfortable. It's not. To do that would be the most abject cruelty. It would be entirely wrong. We say it because it's true. The resurrection gives us a future and a hope. It is personal, it's certain, it's unimaginably wonderful. Calvin says this, let us, however, consider this settled, that no one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and final resurrection. When you are dying and your body is telling you that you are dying, you are scared. You wonder what is to be. You don't want to leave and you're not sure where you're going. But when you know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and when his spirit ministers to you, you can have a good death. You can have peace in death knowing that your body fades away but your spirit is inwardly renewed. Again, Calvin says this, accordingly, he alone has fully profited in the gospel who has accustomed himself to continual meditation upon the blessed resurrection. Don't make Easter the only time you think of the resurrection because it's the only hope you've got on the day after Easter and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that. Look how Paul puts it in another way. 1 Corinthians If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Do you know, last year in Glenrothes, there was a minister who stood up in a pulpit in Glenrothes and said to the congregation on Easter Sunday, it doesn't matter if Jesus has been raised from the dead. You don't have to believe that. As long as you follow God and you're good to your neighbor. I'm just gobsmacked that somebody could say that, and it's someone who's been on radio this past week saying, we've all got to celebrate the Easter message. If the Easter message is, it doesn't matter if Jesus has been raised from the dead. Listen to what Paul says. Listen to what God says in his word. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we're then found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then also those who've fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Please don't patronize Christians by saying, oh, that's sweet, you've got your faith. No. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and he didn't rise from the dead, you are to be pitied. If you believe that your sins have been forgiven and Christ has not been raised, you are to be pitied. But Christ, says Paul, has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Not the last, not the only one. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. That's the extraordinary message of Easter. That's why today we celebrate Easter, tomorrow we bury George, and there is no difference. It's because of today that tomorrow 
will be a time of mourning and also a time of celebration. What do you think? What do I think Jesus would say to those who are not yet believers? I think he would say, why don't you come to me and have life? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Take these words from Romans. What does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's it. How do you become a Christian? You believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the essence and heart, foundation, the whole being of Christianity. It's funny, we were going around the doors and um, poor Chris, it happened to Chris, didn't happen to me, we're putting these cards to the door. Now, it's just a card. It's a card inviting people to an Easter thing, you know, saying Christ is risen. You don't like it, fine. You know, you get a thing about pizza delivery or dry cleaning or something through your door. You don't screw it up and yell out the window, take that, you pizza delivery scumbag. No, you don't. You just, you, you, you just think, I'm not one. It goes in the bin. It goes in the fire. Why do you think people who got these cards threw them out the window? Poor Chris, he got a couple thrown back at him out the window. I mean, why? Because it really bothers. It really, you're trying to turn me religious. No, 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 no. We're not trying to turn anyone religious. We're trying to get people to come and have life through Jesus Christ. I had the opposite experience. And people, uh, a couple of people leaning out their windows saying, thank you very much, which was great. It was lovely. But it's not about just have a nice Easter. It's have a nice life, have a new life, come to know Christ. But I want to leave this with a challenge with those of us who are believers. Because this, this really made me think. And I just, it was a thought that went through my head and I hope it was from God. I imagine, I've been doing a lot of imagining, as you, can imagine, as you can see. I was imagining what Paul would say. But what would Jesus say to us now? If you believe in me, why are you living as though I'm dead? Why are you so gloomy? Why don't you talk to me? Why do you act as though I don't see that you come to church and you're all holy and religious in church and then in the privacy of your own home or in your work or in other circumstances you behave differently as though I'm just a story, as though I'm just a collection of people in a particular place. Why don't you realize that where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst? Why don't you listen to my command to go into all the nations and make disciples and tell them this news. I reckon there'll be plenty of people who will have got up in dawn and washed their, their face in the dew or whatever, or gone up and, and will have, they'll talk about Easter, they'll have gone to church every single day this week, and yet they won't live as though Jesus were alive. And I'm, it's just a challenge to those of us who are Christians. Do you live 
as Jesus being alive? Or in some sense, has your Christianity, your Christ, become a distant memory? Every now and then there's a wee tweak of light that reminds you. There's a photograph, a video, something that reminds you. But it's not a living relationship that you have. All of us as Christians can suffer in that way. I love in the New Testament how Paul especially never talks about Christians dying. He talks about Christians falling asleep. That's really what he is. They've fallen asleep in Jesus. And that's a great thing. When we actually die, if we're a believer, we've fallen asleep in Jesus. My concern is, is, is another kind of sleeping, that some of us have fallen asleep and we've forgotten who Christ is. We've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten the power of the resurrection in our day-to-day lives. I finish with this. John Betjeman's great poem, part of it anyway. Three crosses stand upon a hill, so black against the sky and still, so still and black against the sky, the three of them and we stand by. After the pain, the blessed relief, after the doubt, the firm belief, after the dark, the dread and sinister, the moment comes when angels minister. The sap is rising in the trees, a scent of spring is in the breeze, Good Friday passes after gloom. Christ bursts in glory from the tomb. Amen. Lord, bless your word to us. Help us to know you as the risen Lord. Help us to see that our resurrection is guaranteed in yours and may it be that each one of us here would come to know and love you. And Lord, please forgive us for those of us who do when we've turned in on ourselves and looked away from you. Help us to see not only the wonder of the cross, the glory of the empty tomb, the promised return, but to know that you are with us now. In your name, amen. We're going to finish by singing a song that I just thought Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.